Hello, my name is Veronica Rooney. And my name's Brooklyn Shively. And this is Resilience, a podcast sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences and a proud partner of the 2021 semester program. Resilience is a word used to describe communities bouncing back from tragedy, nations recovering from crises, the land we live on after being ravaged by natural disasters and the effects of climate change. It's how we describe those who overcome adversity and thrive. On this podcast, we will interview professors in the College of Arts and Sciences about how their work intertwines with resilience, exploring how populations rethink systems to combat climate change, fight racial oppression through youth organizing, or adapt to a booming mediascape. We have a tremendous capacity to bounce back, or do we? Join us as we explore this year's Themester topic, Resilience. In this episode, we spoke with Jessica O'Reilly, an assistant professor of international studies at Indiana University. Dr. O'Reilly is an environmental anthropologist who studies environmental management, specifically in regards to global climate change and the Antarctic. O'Reilly has conducted research around the globe about how people interact with science and policy and how these interactions inform their decisions about urgent environmental matters. In understanding people's worldviews and how they are informed by their cultures of origin, she seeks to understand how climate change policy is written and how human health and environmental health intersect. We talk about all of this and more with the brilliant Professor Jessica O'Reilly on this week's episode of Resilience. A podcast by Themester. Hi, Dr. O'Reilly. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. We're so excited for this podcast today. Um, I'm just going to dive right in with the first question. So we were wondering, how does global health and the environment intersect? Um, This is something that we think about in our international studies department. partly due to the history of our department. So um, the first person who taught in this stream was an expert in global health and the environment. Um, And so that's how that class came to be and how the sort of stream that you can concentrate in, in in international studies came to be. That being said, there are really clear uh, linkages um, between global health, which stands in to mean human health um, and and, and the environment, which we can think of as ecological health or environmental health. And so it really um, gives us a chance to look holistically at the well-being of people and the places and ecosystems that human communities live in. Um, There are also a lot of examples where, for example, um, uh, poor environmental conditions leads to human uh, suffering, um, and that can be be health-related. It it can be related to a bunch of other impacts as well, but often if you have uh, poor environmental quality, that reduces human 
health outcomes. Also, um, you know, we don't understand yet the origins of the coronavirus pandemic, um, but there are some hypotheses that these are related to um, environmental conditions in which uh, people um, uh, more closely interacted with wildlife than was healthy um, or, uh, or markets or conditions where um, it was easier to transmit novel forms of disease. I think that idea is interesting that, you know, global health is human health and environment, environmental health is like ecological health. And so obviously like different cultures around the world are interpreting that relationship differently. In your experience, how do different cultures approach that relationship between ecological health and human health? Right. There are different ideas culturally about how to interact as human beings with the natural environment. And um, usually in the West, this has to do with, with science. And so when we think of um, sort of the environment being in order or being healthy, we're often thinking of environmental quality indicators um, like air quality, water quality um, that you can measure and sort of read out the health of the environment in that way. Um, other cultures, including uh, uh, subcultures or cultural groups, um, uh, non-Western cultures in the United States, uh, will have different relationships with the environment. Um, and uh, for example, if we're thinking about um, India, uh, we read this terrific book in my class um, by Professor Haberman, who's in religious studies at IU called River of Love in an Age of Pollution. And there um, the rivers uh, in Hindu tr tradition are um, physical manifestations of uh, gods and goddesses. And to swim in the river um, is like prayer. It uh, connotes blessings. And so that makes the person clean and healthy. Um, and of course the book then uh, looks at the contradiction, uh, the contradiction apparent to people um, engaged in water quality standards and things like that of uh, what does it mean to purify yourself by bathing in a polluted river? Um, and how does that complicate uh, the situation? So, um, so yeah, there are different ideas of sort of purity and interacting with nature. Um, and these, these come into conflict sometimes with the sort of widespread uh, pollution we see um, around the world. Yeah, so I that's really interesting to me. I actually took your class last year and I really enjoyed that book. I was wondering if you could explain or take a deeper dive into how different cultures around the world are resilient in their own way of, um, I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this word right, but epistemology, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> yeah, epistemology is, yeah, yeah is this. Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Do you have more of the question? I was just going to ask if you could explain how like different facets of it affect resilience across the globe. Yeah, well, epistemology is about how we know the things we know. Um, and 
so we, we, I've talked about science um, or religious worldview, and a lot of this bleeds into another concept called ontology, which is um, how we build our, our worldviews. So we have particular visions of the world. We inhabit and live in the world based on these ontologies, which can feel really natural, really totalizing, but they're also something that we create as human beings, as part of our cultural understandings, our, the learning that we do in our communities um, um, and from our peers. And so, um, so yeah, there are a lot of ways to know the world. So that's epistemology. So you can learn, you can know things sort of through intuition, which is also cultural, um, through experience, uh, through science, um, uh, through practice, um, needing to survive in it. Um, there are sort of uh, ways to figure out and understand the world. Um, and then, so that's really about sort of learning strategies, but then how that contributes to um, the worldviews, which are more totalizing, um, uh, really is, I think, where we get to this answer to this question about being resilient um, to to environmental change. Um, So, some of, and so some of these, uh, like if we look at indigenous uh, cultural groups, um, one of my classes uh, that's traveling to the climate negotiations this fall, hopefully, um, we just read The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh. And he talks about indigenous communities in India, um, which there are uh, at least hundreds, um, knew not to live on the coast. You don't live on the coast because that's sort of a liminal zone where if there are storms, storm surges, which are high tides, uh, hurricanes, or um, uh, uh, other sort of coastal weather or climatic events, they knew not to live in that marginal zone. And so Ghosh talks about then how uh, Western culture has really deemed um, coastal areas as prime real estate, as the expensive places where you want to live, where indigenous cultures, I don't mean to to sort of blanket uh, all all indigenous cultures, but the ones that Ghosh is talking about in his book knew not to live there. It was a risk zone, not a high value place to build a permanent settlement. And so that different um, perspective um, and perhaps over a long period of uh, observing and understanding and experiencing disaster um, encouraged that cultural group with just a, they have a longer longer period of experience um, in that area, knew not to live there. And that was one way to be resilient, to to let those spaces in nature that often experience or regularly experience flooding, storms, you know, shifts to the landscape, the coast moves, it changes. You don't really want your house built where the sand is shifting around. Um, And so, uh, so perhaps that longer um, 
historical or even prehistorical perspective uh, has helped some indigenous communities uh, adapt um, or be more resilient when they're allowed to be, right? Is that, sorry. Um, oh, go ahead. I was wondering if that's like a common um, pattern that you've seen where indigenous communities, specifically the one you're talking about right now, often adapt to the environment and Western science more so creates just science and technology to rather help themselves, if that makes sense. That's a really good question. I don't know. There's so much diversity in in cultural groups if we move out of the big ones. Uh, that that we generally hear and know about and look into more marginalized communities. I mean, there are plenty of indigenous cultural groups that drove themselves to extinction. That it's really important to not assume that all indigenous people and culture and cultural groups, they're human groups too, who made mistakes um, and and learned from those mistakes or or suffered the consequences of them. Um, There's just so much diversity over um, time and space for humanity um, that there also were some really brilliant lessons learned. So it's not simply, um, and it's even uh, problematic maybe to, uh, assume that indigenous people are sort of at one with nature um, uh, or, you know, sort of closer to nature. Um, uh, that may be the case, um, but we don't want to presume that all indigenous people want to be um, considered that way. Um, and so I think what's meaningful for, um, for sort of the climate crisis that we find ourselves in now is um, if there are sort of appropriate and respectful ways to learn um, learn more broadly, uh, not just from science, not just from the ideas that that we've sort of all been trained into, um, but to to learn from people who have different understandings of the world and perhaps a, a longer oral tradition of. Um, how to survive in environmental changes, um, then we can incorporate those knowledge systems together um, to have a fuller picture of how to move forward in this in this moment. I think that that idea of ontology that you were talking about, like the way the science behind the way we construct our worldviews is so fascinating. And I'm wondering, in your experience, how does religion play a role? Just because I know that in America, obviously we're heavily influenced by the Christian worldview, um, which has certain environmental consequences based on things written in the Bible. And so in your experience, I know it's very general, but Mm -hmm. how does religion play a role? Right, and I do, I study scientists. So I actually study science as culture. Um, So I don't have the deepest experience in this. But religion is a deeply powerful and meaningful way for people to think ethically through how to interact with each other um, and with the world around them. Um, And so even looking at the Christian biblical tradition, which again, I'm just a, a, a 
a, a casual sort of bystander, not an expert on, on this. I um, previously to working at a, before I worked at IU, I worked at a Catholic uh, liberal arts school in Minnesota, and I would actually bring a theologian in um, to, to help us figure out this, this stuff. Um, and, you know, there's, there's conflicting ideas in the, in the Bible. Um, there's ideas uh, about dominion over nature, but then there's also a lot of messaging about um, conserving and being stewards of, of the place. Um, so I think in the cr Christian tr tradition and in our in uh, re religious traditions, there are um, really powerful insights into how to sort of live in relationship uh, with the environment and that that can be a really inspiring way to, to reach audiences that may be less interested in the science or know the science, but that's not what compels them to, to want to act. That's not their sort of source of sustenance or inspiration or meaning. So I think in general, religion um, uh, as a framework of meaning and ethics can be incredibly powerful toward finding environmental solutions. Since there are so many cultural perspectives, religious perspectives, scientific perspectives on how to interact with the world and the environment around us, is there any way that we can scale when environmental justice and resilience has been reached? How do you view environmental justice and how can we, like, as a public, view success in that way? That's a really great question, and um, I'm generally uh, overly up, or I'm generally an optimist about this. Um, but we're not there in terms of environmental justice. Um, so environmental justice is uh, is looking at environmental issues through a human lens. And this is a really great place where um, global health or health and environment intersect, because environmental justice is about looking at sites of environmental degradation and seeing how it affects human communities. And in the United States, um, for example, it's usually communities of color um, that are more impacted. They're more likely to live um, near oil refineries, for example, and, and, and places uh, that may have um, poor air and water quality um, localized. And so, um, I mean, I guess a simple way to see um, environmental justice succeed would be to see environmental harms sort of distributed across, uh, across all the sort of uh, socioeconomic um, indicators that, that we use. Um, but I want to take a little more optimistic approach to that and not just see harms distributed, but active work to reduce harm in sites where, um, where there's been disproportionate suffering and distribute the harms that way by, by reducing it across the board with particular attention to where sort of history and economy and racism um, have contributed to uh, you know, decreased lifespans, lower quality of life um, for particular communities. What is the hit? 
I don't know if this is your exact field, but I'm sure you kind of know. Um, what is the history of environmental racism specifically in America? Mm-hmm. And you can also discuss abroad and colonized areas, but how, how have um, these communities been able to be resilient in the face of this colonization and predisposition? Yeah, I don't know if resilience is the word I would use. Sometimes when it like sometimes when I think of resilience in these cases, it people being resilient also looks a lot like people who have no other choice um, and ju- but just to to move along um, or to to sort of stand strong in this. Um, so I I. I would, I think there actually needs to be some interventions, um, to, to help people be resilient in a way where they can flourish, not being sort of strong in the face of suffering. And this is a huge question. And again, it's something that I care about and I teach about, um, because I think it's really important to think about the environment, um, in relation to the historic ways and and the ways we continue to sort of perpetuate social inequalities and environmental harm. But, um, but yeah, it's not, it's not a topic of my research. Um, And so, I mean, there's a, there's a long story to this um, and in broad strokes um, there were, uh, there were European people and then white, sort of settler colonialists um, in the United States and elsewhere who had uh, some technological um, advantages um, and who were able to uh, uh, choose to exploit um, groups of people and places. And we we see this um, in colonization. We see this in the history of slavery in the United States and elsewhere. And um, really when we look at uh, where communities of color, particularly uh, African American communities, live, um, their choices are constrained still uh, by uh, by ec- economic opportunity and um, and other racist policies that have have legacies to them that control where their options are to live and where they sort of, where it's harder to, to live. Um, so there's sort of housing policies having to do with this. Uh, there's more sort of explicit racism, but, you know, sort of the, the bureaucratic racism of, of policy choices that we've made and sometimes continue to live with. Um, and then uh, a, a legacy of uh, slavery in the United States that we're still contending with um, and, and see the ramifications of in people's bodies and life chances and choices. Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, and this also can transcend race um, when you have sort of uh, when you're poorer, um, it you have less choices on where you're going to live. You're going to choose uh, housing that is uh, cheaper and that is going to be less desirable. And when you have a little bit of more flexible income, a little bit more 
uh, economic power, you can choose to move away from oil refineries um, as long as there's sort of homeowners associations and other and sort of fairness and lending and, and those sorts of issues that make uh, moving away from those uh, uh, more polluted zones feasible. So yeah, it's a long, a long history. There's a lot of threads to, to pull on and um, uh, I vary between, um, well, you know, there, there are bureaucratic threads that we can unravel um, that would help start fixing this immediately. Um, but there are also more systemic issues um, that no amount of sort of policy tweaking can, can get to. I just want to say I really love your point of not defining this as resilience because, sorry, I'm like losing my voice, but because these are just situations these people have been put in and they shouldn't have the responsibility to be resilient in the face of this oppression. I think that's a really important point to remember. Yeah, Bell Hooks wrote about this um, and about the trope of the strong Black woman being held up as sort of an ideal. Um, But we uh, also have to take into account um, what what we as a society have done to, to force that trope to exist. Yeah, and bringing that back to like what you were saying before about you know, constructing people's worldview. I mean, inherently, if you're poor and you're being forced into this situation, I mean, your worldview is going to be very different from somebody that's, you know, had the ability to make all these choices. And then if you're in the position of someone who is able to make these choices, I mean, you your lack of knowledge about what the poorest among us are experiencing is going to affect your decisions about, you know, these things like climate change policy, and might explain why we haven't had as much movement on the issue as maybe we need to, because the people in power aren't necessarily experiencing what the poorest among us have been forced to experience. There's a lot of reasons why we're slow moving on this. Yeah. (laughs) Some of it is about being insulated uh, economically as a country um, from, from some of the, you know, we're not, from the sort of front lines of climate impacts that are happening more in marginal places around the world um, and less in the United States. And we also have the economic might uh, to address some of these disasters as they happen with FEMA, um, our Federal Emergency Management Agency. Um, uh, But also part of it is uh, well-funded opposition to to climate policy. So um, it's, you know, there's only so much uh, science understanding, so much science education you can provide. Um, We need more, Um, but, uh, and there's only so much sort of experience, experiential accounts of climate disaster. um, When you have a well-funded lobby opposing climate policy, particularly in the United States, um, and really making substantial campaign contributions to um, uh, all all aspects of our of our of American politics, particularly one party, um, but not limited to uh, we 
really understand why we've, we, why we've stalled. So some of it is cultural and some of it is really sort of tactically planned um, over decades. Thank you to Dr. O'Reilly for discussing her work with us today. The music for the intro and outro is Wrote This Letter Instrumental by Justin Anthony Adams and Sebastian Barnaby Robertson, provided by Universal Production Music under a non-commercial license. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Resilience, a podcast by Themaster.